You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. Today we're talking about black and white films. It didn't specifically have to be older movies. There are newer ones that are in black and white. However, we both happened to pick movies from before 1970. Nothing wrong with that. So, Andrew, tell me uh, about your experience with black and white movies. Do you watch many of them? Is it kind of rare for you? How's it go? When I was younger, I watched more than I do now. Like, my parents would recommend these movies, and sometimes we would watch them as a family. My first experience with black and white media that I can remember, my earliest is The Three Stooges. I've always had some exposure to black and white, so it was never a hindrance for me to watch something in black and white like it may be for others. Can you think of any really positive black and white movie experiences you've had? Something that you sought out on your own without your parents bringing it to you or some grandparent? Not to date myself too much, but I had a subscription to the Blockbuster mail service because I didn't want to do Netflix because I thought Blockbuster will survive. They did in your heart. Yeah. (laughs) So I had the Blockbuster subscription. I wanted to watch just as many movies as I could after high school because, you know, I'm going to college. I was doing college full-time and work part-time, but I had nights to myself and I would be up watching movies till like two in the morning sometimes. A lot of it was just, you know, kind of going online, and sometimes it's a cheater thing, I guess you could say, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with Googling best movies ever made or, you know, best movies of a certain decade. I would just go through these movies and, you know, see where they're positioned on different lists and stuff, and there were quite a few black and whites that were up there, and so I would just watch them to uh, see what all the fuss was about. Movies like Sunset Boulevard and 12 Angry Men or the one that I chose for today, Some Like It Hot, a lot of them are just all movies that are great films, and I just I wanted to watch them for myself. Well, that's good. That's a recurring theme on this show, and I think one of the reasons uh, I've had you back so many times is that your movie taste does seem so broad. And it doesn't really sound like any particular genre scares you. I am willing to try almost anything, but I will say that, you know, knowing what I know about certain movies might turn me off to them, so I won't watch them. But, like, you know, something like Cannibal Holocaust, like, I don't really want to watch that. For myself, I was never much into black and white growing up. I did have the same experience as you watching uh, Three Stooges with the family. And I I liked it then, and I still enjoy it. But then I had a really bad time with black and white movies in school. They would show them during film class. And I just found them so boring. I I can't tell if it's because the movie was bad or because I was in school being forced to watch things. And then at home one time... I was there with my dad and my grandparents, and Casablanca was on, and it was around Thanksgiving, didn't have anything else to do, so we watched it, and my dad kept saying, see this moment, see that moment, see how so many movies have ripped that off, and this was the first one to do that stuff, 
and I was 11 or 12, and I thought, yeah, you're right, but it's also really boring, or at least that's the way it hit me at the time. So from that bad taste in my mouth, it took me years. Only in the last few years have I really made an attempt to watch black and white. The amount of black and white movies I've actively watched or enjoyed, I could count on one hand. So this episode is helping me get over that hump. Oh man, is this going to be another movie that you quit halfway through with some like it hot? I swear to God, Frank, I will stop doing these podcasts. No, I'll meet you halfway and say, I watched the whole thing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) I don't think my review is going to be as glowing as yours, but I finished it. I finished it. All two hours of it. Uh, The disdain in your voice at the phrase two hours. (laughs) Well, this is the right time to get into it. So some like it hot. A two-hour comedy, slapsticky comedy from 1959. Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, Marilyn Monroe. It's a classic, and most classics should stay in the past, my friend. But hey, we're digging this sucker up, partly because I've never seen a Marilyn Monroe movie, so I was just curious, historically speaking, what was the whole deal with her? So you broke that glass ceiling for me. I can't tell if it's the time frame, that style of acting, or if she just wasn't bringing a whole lot, but I don't know, she didn't quite hit me as being uh, the icon that she seems to have become. I thought she was perfectly fine. I didn't, I, I think there was a style of acting back then for her type of character, and she played it to a T. This movie takes place in Prohibition. The first 10 minutes of this were pretty jarring because it might as well play like the original Scarface. You got these mobsters and they're, they're smuggling booze to a speakeasy. If I didn't know what the movie was ahead of time, I would not think it was a comedy. It does open like a classic mobster movie. You know, it's a 1959 film, nothing's on screen, but... You know, when you really think about it, it's a pretty brutal mob hit at one point, which is kind of the the big incident where the two main characters with Joe and Jerry, um, played by Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, have to get out of Dodge. And then they start their cross-dressing adventure to Florida. I think with these types of movies, with older films, I think especially with comedies, a lot of the humor comes from either lighthearted slapstick stuff or it's all in the dialogue. And it's just these like witty remarks that people make. It's not like how we have comedies nowadays where it's like these big kind of gross out moments or really risque humor. It can just be a quick little piece of dialogue where if you stop paying attention for a little bit, you can miss the joke. I thought it would have more snappy dialogue. Well, just screw my opinion then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought it would have more snappy dialogue, and not to say it didn't have any. This subgenre, right, of comedy, cross-dressing films like Tootsie, this, uh, just one of the guys from the 80s that I hope to talk about on this show someday. 
I think with all of those, immediately they go into two camps. Either they try to make you believe that, yes, this person could be mistaken for the opposite sex, or they say, no way in hell is anybody going to believe that Tony Curtis with his big broad shoulders is going to be looked at as a woman. So let's just throw a wig on him and say, oh yeah, Jack Lemon, he looks cute now, and just be done with it and let the movie progress. And it just, it hit me too silly that these guys are so, well, not Jack Lemon as much because he tends to play whiny characters and just not traditionally the strong leading man sort. But Tony Curtis, wow. A few scenes, he was practically bursting out of his female wardrobe. He was a pretty fit dude. All they needed to do was make some of the women in the band, because going back to the setup for this movie, like you said earlier, these guys witness a mob hit, they decide to go down to Florida to wait it out, and they cross-dress because they're musicians playing for a band that's all female so they can't go with the band unless they're accepted as women so they pretend to be girls and they take a train ride from chicago down to florida correct yes it would have helped me a little bit with the conceit if some of the women the real women in the band were maybe stockier or a little less feminine but all the women in that band look, you know, wayfish, very petite. And so it just juxtaposed harder against Tony Curtis. <laughs> that didn't quite uh, mesh with me the whole movie. Maybe it would have been nice if there was a scene or two where somebody did a double take. He's going to the John and somebody looks at him and says, you know, brother, you ain't no girl or something. Just, just give me a little taste of reality. I mean, I can understand that. I mean, because, yeah, it is, it is one of those things where everyone accepts it. And then when they are found out, of course, it's at the end of the movie by the people they're trying to run away from. And it, it's pretty immediate. I definitely get where you're coming from with that. That idea of the hiding in plain sight. I mean, the beach scene with, you know, Jack Lemon in the swimsuit. I mean, yeah, it's obviously a guy. <laughs> it's just there's no hiding it. But it's, there is like that silliness of just, oh, you have such broad shoulders. Oh, well, that's from carrying the, the bow fiddle. It is really ridiculous. Like, you, you are right. For me, that just kind of adds to the humor of the film that everyone's just that dense. You mentioned Tootsie. I mean, but Dustin Hoffman's a pretty small dude anyway. They cast a really small guy for that role. They got, you know, pretty big Tony Curtis and still pretty decently sized Jack Lennon to play women and it's just it was silly but it's supposed to be a comedy I guess and that's why I guess that's what makes Oz was it Osgood his infatuation with Jack Lemon that much kind of funny or he just doesn't notice well that we could debate I guess you could debate that yeah because at the end of the movie he didn't seem to care I actually thought because I, I read very lightly before watching this I've heard of Billy Wilder, but I've never seen any of his movies. I have no idea what type of stuff he did. I guess he was a little riskier than other directors from that time period. And I was hoping maybe it would be revealed that that rich guy Osgood going after Jack Lemmon 
that it, the reveal would be he's actually gay, and the whole time he knew it was Lemon and Drag. Because when they meet initially, he's talking about his overbearing mother not liking his brides, and that's why he's been married about a dozen times. And I thought maybe that was a sly way of saying, well, actually, maybe the reason why he's had so many wives is not because his mom doesn't like him, but because he doesn't like that they're women. Oh, I mean, I, I, yeah, Wilder was a riskier director. It's an interesting point. Is there anything about the black and white format that you think helped this movie or possibly hindered it? Specifically with Billy Wilder movies, I've noticed, at least personally speaking, I think he's great at using shadows to his advantage. The opening sequence with the mobsters, just the lights are hitting the eyes in the right direction or they're covering half the face just right. When people are walking in, you know, there are a couple shots where you see the shadow coming in first and you're like, oh, that's who that is. It's that mobster. You know, there are only so many shades of black, you know, of gray you can see, or at least use to your advantage. It's not as, I'll say, dynamic as color necessarily. So you have to use the lighting a lot. You have to be, I think, more mindful of the lighting. And that's where he, that's where I think his strength as a visual director comes in. Talking about Marilyn Monroe now as the love interest for a quick second. She's kind of both their love interests, but only for a scene or two before Tony Curtis, because he's so manly, he establishes his dominance over Jack Lemon. Is Curtis Jerry? Uh, no, he's Joe. Okay, so Joe, there's this love aspect to it between him and... What's Marilyn Monroe's character's name? Sugar. Joe and Sugar. They're both lying during their meet-cute, and they both just want somebody well-off or super attractive to fall in love with. And I didn't quite want them to be together. Because it's like, well, what do you really know about either one that makes you so infatuated you would run off together? You know, one of the threads of the Wilder movies is um, not everyone's necessarily a likable character. A lot of the characters are also pretty selfish. Kind of hoping by the end, maybe the director would just throw me a wink so that he knows how the characters come off and kind of makes it part of the story as far as what the moral for the audience might be. But they go off into the sunset. Yeah, it does have kind of uh, just a very classic Hollywood-esque happy ending. What really stands out to you when you watch this? The meeting scene, Jerry, when he's Daphne, when Daphne meets Osgood and he follows her into the elevator and gets fresh with her, when he goes back up to the hotel room with Tony Curtis in there and he's just upset because this guy just got fresh with him and he pinched his butt, or at least he says he pinched me so that the implication is he, he pinched, Osgood pinched Jack Lemon's booty he checks himself out in the mirror and he's like, I'm not even that pretty. And then just walks away from it. <laughs> it's just funny because it's one of those movies where, you know, it's these two men masquerading as women. And they're also just like, Oh, you know, it's that they're like, Oh, men are pigs. And so it's just, it's a trope at this point. I feel like it was probably a bit of a trope then, but it's just funny. 
talking about them in their female disguises, did you get any sense of what characterization they were going for? Either the characters in the movie pretending to be women, or what maybe Billy Wilder wanted his male actors to portray as guys in drag? Well, it seemed like they were trying to be more upscale women, or at least Josephine was a little bit more upscale, whereas Daphne seemed like the, I'll say, the the cackler. Uh, Jack Lemmon, when he was Jerry, wouldn't laugh at things that he said, and then as Daphne, he's just, you know, he'll make a joke, like, ah He's laughing at himself. He seems like supposed to be more of the kind of ditzy, blonde type of character, whereas Tony Curtis is just... Oh, hello, we were at the conservatory. <laughs> I think I'd like the movie a lot more if I just had you recite it to me in characters. You would definitely be the Tony Curtis role. I think you'd be good for it. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Jack Lemon's Daphne. He was giggling so much after almost every line, constantly. It felt so one note, and when you... Compare that to Tony Curtis's portrayal of a woman. There's some thoughtful dialogue going on where he's he's trying to have a moment with Marilyn Monroe as a woman. I thought his performance, Curtis's performance, was a little bit more modulated, had a little bit more flavor to it. Well, definitely. I mean, he's he's of the two of them, he's kind of the straight man where, you know, he's going to have the more serious part. Because Jack Lemon was the, you know, he was the put-upon sidekick. You know, he was never going to get the girl. He was always going to be the guy for the laughs. Cross-dressing movies, I think there's always a little danger involved because of the gender politics. Not that I'm setting you up for anything. Watching this movie now, in the 21st century... How do you feel it holds up as far as gender roles or politics? Oh, gosh. I guess with anything like this, I always think of it as you have to watch it with the time period in mind, I feel like. We wouldn't think it's necessarily funny nowadays for a man to dress in women's clothing if that was how they wanted to dress in their identity, and that's perfectly fine. Like, I have no problem with that. With this, though, I mean, back then it was... A hoot and a holler. It's been a form of a cheap laugh for a long time. It might not be so much anymore. With older movies, with stuff like this, it's just best to keep it in mind as you watch it, because otherwise you're just going to be seething through the entire movie. I would say if you laughed at this movie because Jack Lemmon's wearing a dress, I don't think that makes you a bad person. He looks silly, and that's kind of the point. I don't think it's meant to be demeaning to women in any way. It's just like, hey, let's get two pretty big stars and put them in dresses. <laughs> Especially Tony Curtis. I mean, he was like a man's man type star. It didn't make me cringe in its portrayal of, of women or how most of them are, are treated throughout the film. And actually brings it to mind a scene early on before they've transitioned where they're going to a, an agency to look for work and Tony Curtis is flirting with the secretary 
and she tells him about a gig that he gets really excited about. And it turns out, before they decide they're going to go all the way and become women, that they're only looking for female uh, musicians. And so it's kind of the secretary's way of getting back at him for stringing her along. And that was a nice, a nice moment to, to show that he was, uh, he was getting his just desserts on some level for being such a cad. That was a nice little moment. Just the, the winks that the secretaries shared and just they knew that they were, they were being had. So it was, yeah, it wasn't really insulting to its female characters, I think. Any final thoughts about the film? Some of the same jokes and tropes in Mrs. Doubtfire play out in Some Like It Hot. If you liked Mrs. Doubtfire, you might like this one. And if you like kind of the quick dialogue type humor, almost any Billy Wilder comedy, I think, should be up your alley. We're going ahead a few years from 1959 to 1965 and King Rat, which is about a bunch of POWs at a Japanese camp in, uh, in Singapore, a camp called Changji during World War II, and it's based on a James Clavel novel. Since you hadn't seen this before, what did you think of it? It wasn't what I expected it to be. It was a lot more of a character study type film. Agreed. And actually, that's what the author of the novel said as well. Uh, And he meant it as a criticism in that there's no real focus to the plot. They don't have a mission that the POWs need to perform. Like the opening text says, all they're doing is trying to survive, which certainly makes it unique as far as other war movies I've seen, POW stuff, where it's always about the escape and finding a way to best their captors. And this does not do that. It's just a lot of sweat, bugs, and nastiness, both literally and figuratively. While you're watching it, though, did the character study aspect of it, did that bother you while you were watching it, or was that something you thought of more after the fact? I guess I will say that because there was no real plot line, I don't want to say necessarily separate incidents, but it makes me curious about the novel. Like, what was the focus, what was the plot line of the novel versus how the movie did it? It's not that I felt like there was something missing. It was just more of like, okay, it's just kind of a movie about the day-to-day life in the camp. You know, this British officer's experiences with this American corporal who's the de facto ruler of the camp. It was slower than I thought it would be, I'll say. Like, it was, it was a little slow at times. Do you recall what scenes you weren't quite dialed into? Or characters that were drag? I forgot his name, but like that pissy British lieutenant. He was kind of annoying. The Provo Marshal? Yeah. The cop? Yeah. I felt like the scenes were a little long in the tooth at times. There is a lot to unpack in it, because it's just, it's a lot of just separate episodes kind of thrown into a movie. The main spine of the book, the goal, the mission, barely present in this. And it's amazing what things they do, little throwaway lines in the movie that 
just kind of side glance at subplots in the book, Corporal King, he's not just trying to amass money for the hell of it. He wants to make sure he can buy his way out of the prison. If the Allies lose the war, he's worried that the Japanese are just going to kill everybody at the camp, potentially, when that happens. So he's trying to get enough money together so he can bribe somebody and escape the prison. There's a lot of cat and mouse stuff, no pun intended, hmm. between Corporal King and the Provo Marshal Gray, who's always trying to catch him in the act. And Gray comes off very ineffectual in this, in the movie, whereas in the book, there's a bit more give and take, and there are some close calls where he almost gets King. There's a great subplot involving the nurse that we only see in the movie in a few scenes, uh, Stevens. In the book, he's gay and dresses like a woman. And that causes friction with people in the camp because some can't see past his sexuality. And others say, well, he's just a guy who dresses a certain way, but he's a nurse and he's saving people, so get off his ass. You know, it's interesting that you're saying that, like, that's kind of the, that that's stuff that's in the book, because it does sound like, I don't want to sound like a jerk, but it sounds like it would have made the movie a little bit more intriguing, knowing that there was, like, an underlying plot other than just greed and power. So in the movie, does it, it comes off to you like King is just looking to, to get one over on people? Not so much one over on people, just, you know... It's an interesting POW camp, whereas, like, the guards really aren't there a whole lot, it seems. It's just they're, these prisoners are left to their own devices because there's no way to escape, realistically. And it was a real camp. Oh. Yeah, and the author, James Clavel, he was a POW at that camp, and academics say that Marlowe was a stand-in for him because they were both pilots. And I believe there's a story about him actually being buddy-buddy with an American who was at the camp at the time, and how much of it really happened and didn't, Clavel never said. Hmm. Yep, based in reality somewhat. I remember reading he was a POW, but I didn't know it was that particular. So, I mean, it's an interesting idea that these guys are just allowed to kind of have their own little prisoner society. But yeah, it did come off as just kind of, this guy was just a a businessman first and foremost. I think that's why it was a little slower to me because I'm just trying to think like other than money, what's his motivation? And like, it's not like you need a, another motivation for things. It was just a film of episodes of just these prisoners lives, but mainly him just kind of being, you know, high on the hog and them trying to breed the rats and just, Oh, we'll tell everyone that it's a deer mouse. And one thing that, I think about the movie that was a little weird to me, considering there was no underlying plot, was, you know, the radio scene was just kind of like, all right, you know, there was a radio in the bed, and they got rid of it. There you go. Did I miss something? No. It really didn't speak to a larger aspect of the story. I think it was just in there to lend it some reality in like a lot of camps, they would have a little radio and just find out information how the war's going, because being in Southeast Asia, in that corner of the world, they, they don't know how it's going. I think because it didn't 
attach itself to anything else throughout the movie. And there was such a big to-do made of it over in that sequence was just, it kind of felt almost like we already know that these guys have a miserable existence and here's just another thing to rub it in. I don't want to say that it wasn't my cup of tea. I think on a second viewing, I would appreciate it more because I think I would notice more subtleties here and there. Although I will say that the sequence, it was just about in the middle of the movie where they're eating the soup with the fresh meat. Dog. Okay, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> like the dog soup scene was pretty great. Gross, but it was that was a great sequence. You asked like in for some like it hot, is there a moment where you wish the scene was in color? I wish that scene was in color for King Rat because with the soup and with him cutting the meat, you know, butchering the meat, it adds that level of in a way gore to it. But you, you know, you'd see it and be like, oh, okay, that would look good to a, a POW. That's some nice marbling, maybe. <laughs> if you like meat, you know, it's this big old leg and meat on it. Almost looks like a giant tomahawk steak, in a way. He's cutting it up, and I wanted to see, like, the color of the soup and what else was in there. And just, if it was, like, a good red soup or, like, a good creamy color, I, I can imagine just it would look lip-smackingly good. And then you find out what it is oh, maybe I wouldn't want to eat that, but because it's black and white, it's just a gray soup. That scene, it's nice that you mention it, because while this movie isn't plot-heavy, I do think it's very thematic, and the, the scene where they are eating the dog soup, that dog was owned by one of their fellow soldiers in the camp, the dog got into a chicken coop that it wasn't supposed to, so the camp ordered it disposed of. Corporal King got his hands on that dog meat and put it to good use. And that scene, everybody he's invited to his feast, once they know what's up with the soup and that it's made of their furry little pal, is a great example, one of many in the movie, that just shows what can happen to your humanity or what, as a POW, and you're just trying to survive, compromises you make with your values. They're just looking at each other. They, they don't quite want to touch the soup. And then by the end of it, they're all lip smacking. And it turns into a scene of horror. The way it's shot, close-ups of these guys just having orgasms eating this dog soup. And you can see that by that point, they've totally lost their reservations. They're just happy to eat something nutritious. That was, I think, my favorite scene of the film. It was because of that, where you can see they're like, oh, yeah, it's not right to eat it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that it was a dog at first. It was the fact that it was the dog that they knew. That was the line, and then it was just tasted too good. To Corporal King's thinking, it's like that dog was going to go either way, but at least this way it didn't go to waste. He was very practical. When we talk about when these movies were made and portrayals of certain stereotypes, did it come to your attention just how well they seemed to portray the Japanese that were running the camp? They definitely did not make them out to be complete monsters. 
they seemed to be fair people. They just wanted people to follow the rules. Like the um, the radio in the bed sequence, they weren't roughing people up or shooting them like you might expect in a, a movie about POWs. It was just like, hey, man, I'm just doing my job. You know, where's the radio? Yeah, and at the end of the movie, when they read off the Emperor's notice that Japan has surrendered, I actually felt a little bad for them. I mean, USA all the way, but... You know, there was a little moment where it's like, ah, it's got to suck to be on the losing side. Well, I mean, especially in a situation like that, I mean, that's kind of embarrassing. You got to tell a bunch of prisoners that, like, hey, we got to release you, you know. Sorry for this, guys. The morality of Corporal King's actions, profiteering the way he did, did you see him more as a, a villain or anti-hero or misunderstood hero? How'd you feel about him by the end of it? I guess at the end of it, I just is more of he's not necessarily a villain. He is definitely more of an anti-hero in a way. He's not a villain in the sense where I felt like he was going out of his way to hurt people and control through fear and violence. He was just. He was amassing his fortune and making sure that he and his friends slash employees lived as comfortably as they could, you know, within reason in this POW camp. In a camp full of have-nots, he wanted to be the have, and he was. It's a major part of the story in the book, actually. This idea that these guys, they're all soldiers, but then once they pass through the gate at that POW camp, and they're stripped of most of their humanity, are they still soldiers? Should they still be behaving like soldiers when they barely have uniforms, what's left of them, they don't have weapons, they don't have any support, no logistical support, they're just guys surviving, should we expect them to still have a military decorum in such a terrible uh, situation? If you want to think about that, I think this is a pretty good movie for it, and I would recommend the book, especially if you want to have that thought experiment. Okay, well, here's a loaded question for you. If someone had to pick one book or movie? With the caveat that it's hindering the movie a little bit. It is a little over two hours. The book is more like 600 pages. I would say the book, because the book has everything good from the movie. I think all the movie is good, it's just not very focused, like we've been talking about. So the book has all that, has all those characters, all those moments, and more of it, and a focused plot. Yeah, I'd say the book, if you had to choose between one or the other. There you have it, folks. No recommendations for today. No, that's not true, Andrew. We recommend both of them. It just sounds like... Together, we don't have a consensus to recommend both of them in one shot. We've picked our horses, and I think it's up to the listener to decide for themselves the next time they want a black and white movie, which one would they rather have? The silly comedy or the downer POW story? (laughs) 